Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models episode 94. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, even more so, we've got an extremely special guest on the line with us today, Mr. Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be on the show. Thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to get a guest of your caliber here. Now, I've got so many things that I want to ask you, but before we do, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners know who you are, but why don't you give yourself just a quick introduction to bring everyone up to speed in case they don't? I'm a three-time U.S. Olympian in the sport of judo, all for 81 kilos. Took ninth in my first Olympics in 2008, fifth in London 2012 and I silvered in Rio in 2016. I also have a BJJ black belt from John Donaher and Henzo Gracie. Um, I think I'm one of the fastest promoted to black belt um, in the history of jiu-jitsu. I guess that's argumentative since I come from a martial arts background. And I just wanted to say, Travis, I'm a huge fan. Of course, I'll be we'll be ta- discussing your YouTube channel probably before the show is done, but I just wanted to say your your YouTube channel has really helped me as a, as pretty much a purely jiu-jitsu guy, start to adopt some judo into my game. And, you know, I did a little bit of judo for years now, but I never really had like a mentor that could show me, you know, things that really work in competition. But watching your channel has been a huge help for me. It's a resource that I recommend to pretty much everyone in my dojo and uh, to all of my friends who want to improve their their stand-up game in the gi. I always recommend your channel. So it's a, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Oh, thank you. So actually, that's probably just a, a great opening thing to chat about, which is the the learning experience and transfer of knowledge from judo to jujitsu. Now, I mean, I, I'm i more of a hobbyist, whereas Matt, my brother, he does jujitsu professionally. He's got a gym. He competes a ton. So we have very, very different backgrounds in terms of how much time we put into the sport, how we we operate during the sport. But the one thing that we're both very passionate about is optimal learning. And from what you've described, you know, you have a great background where you've got an extremely high level judo background. And when you transition to jujitsu, it's something that you were able to make a ton of progress in really fast. And I'm just wondering, as someone who personally doesn't have that strong judo background, what are the kind of parallels that you saw between the two arts? I mean, when you started jujitsu, what were some of the lessons you were able to bring in from judo that really helped you excel in jujitsu and advance as quickly as you did? There's one really big common theme, and I think it applies to any kind of grappling combat sport, so to speak. And I kind of refer to it as like your oh shit meter, meaning like regardless of 
anything, like no matter where you are, you have like an internal feeling of just being in a bad place, right? Like, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see some guys that look a little like unsavory, you're like, you know what? Like, I I feel like I should be on guard right now. And when you're dealing with combat sports, it's important to make sure you listen to that and that you use it to your advantage. And being a judo player, when you're competing on a world stage and you run into so many different styles, so many people you've never seen before, you have no idea what they're going to throw at you, that that meter gets trained really, really well. So even if I've never seen you or I have any idea of what it is you're doing, you could be doing a technique I've never seen before. That meter is really ingrained to me where it's like, you know what? My senses are a little bit heightened and I tend to listen to it and it serves me well. You know, that's something that I really want to dig a little bit deeper into here because you're kind of talking about it. And I've heard this repeatedly in a lot of contexts, this this oh shit meter, like this internal factor that you've got that kind of you can use. It can either break you or it can drive you depending on how you respond. And I think that a lot of us who are, you know, more casuals, we we look at champions and we look at people who do this professionally and we think, well, these guys must have nerves of steel. They must not have fear of anything that, you know, they must just be just like just complete emotional rocks. But what you're describing here, it actually sounds like you're saying that, no, you feel that kind of same sense of urgency as well. And it's just a matter of how you use that to drive yourself. Is that correct? A little bit, so to speak. But I guess I guess a better way to kind of think about it is not like a necessarily like in danger, not in danger. It's, it's like an internal feeling like if you were to walk into a business meeting and you meet somebody for the first time, you get a feeling of like, this is going to go well, regardless of having the conversation about numbers or anything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people label certain players or certain situations are good, bad. They're really good at this. So I can't do that. But if you went into every experience in grappling with a clean slate, having not known anybody and they're doing something, you'll just get a feeling like, oh, he knows what he's doing from here, Mm -hmm. right? Like if I'm rolling with Bernardo Faria, for example, and he gets to half guard, my meter is like through the roof. But if I'm going with a black belt that, you know, is a lasso spider guard player and all of a sudden he's in deep half, like my meter's not really running, even though it's the same position. It has a lot to do with interpreting, you know, your opponent's emotional state and like that vibrations that he's putting out into the universe that's making you feel uncomfortable. You know, it's like a, it's a presence that they have inside specific situations. So in judo, I guess you would notice that sort of when you grip up right away, you would tell First, I guess, before you grip up, you you sort of, uh, are they righty? Are they a lefty? You know, I assume, I'm not 100% sure, but I assume most of the guys you fought, you probably watch a little bit of tape on them when you're, when you're on like an Olympic stage and you can, you know, you have an idea of what some of these guys are going to do. But once you link up, you can kind of feel them and sort of see, you know, when, when you're safe and also when you need to. You know, if they have a, a grip that is dominant, you're, you've been outgripped. I guess that oh shit meter is going through the roof again, right? 
Yeah, and judo operates at such a faster, more physical tempo than jujitsu that a lot of judo, even though we understand everything from a technical side and we can technically do the one, two, three, four steps of every technique, when you're doing randori or you're in competition, a lot of it is based on feel and timing where you have to feel the opportunity and the openings with your opponent. And when you're competing for a long period of time and at a successful one, that's where that oh shit meter comes into play, not only on a defensive side, but also on an offensive side, like in NASCAR, like when you see the hole, like you got to punch it and you got to go. No questions asked. You just, your body senses the opening and you take it like that. And when I transfer over into jujitsu, a lot of it has that same application where I don't even use a lot of necessarily like one, two, three step techniques in my jujitsu. A lot of it is I just see openings of off balance and I take it. I mean, one of my best sweeps, regardless of ranks with anybody, is a cross grip from Butterfly Guard. Technically stand up and push them over. Yeah. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, it works. It works eight out of 10 times. It's funny you mentioned that because we literally talked about that exact thing. I think on like one or two episodes ago, Matt, do you remember that? We were talking about how, you know, everyone wants to do these like jujitsu 101 textbook sweeps where you load up the guy's weight, but sometimes just standing up and pushing him over from butterfly is like the most high percentage thing you can do. And, you know, Travis, I, it's, it's fascinating hearing you say that because Matt and I have been talking about the same observation, which is that, you know, as we, as we started doing jujitsu, both of us, jujitsu really being our first experience with any combat sport, as we started doing it, you know, we absorbed these concepts in, in like in the form of techniques where, you know, your instructor comes in and he says, here's the, the three step arm bar. And you try to do those three steps and it would never work because your opponent would zig instead of zagging. And eventually we both kind of came to the conclusion that now it's not about following the steps exactly. It's about creating movements and looking for those openings and taking them when you get them. And the reality is like a lot of the time, the things that work, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be sometimes very ugly stuff. But just like you said, if there's an opening, you got to take it. I'm wondering at the high levels, you have to have a situation where the other guy doesn't give a lot of openings. I mean, when I'm in there in the gym, right, dealing with normal people of all experience levels, even a, even a black belt who's average is still going to leave openings if I can make them do it. Do you find that at the higher levels, there's anything particularly you have to do to get the other guy to give you those openings? At the at the highest level, and when I say the highest level, I I truly mean the highest level, like average black belts wouldn't fall into this criteria. You know, we're talking about competing against like the Gordon Ryans of the world, the Gary Tonins, like the the A-level athletes, not not just your, hey, this guy's good in this local region. Because the skill gap between the one, two, and three in the world to like the tens, twelves, and thirties in the world are so far removed, they might as well be white belts. Yeah, I like how you discussed the oh shit meter. And uh, I actually never considered it in an offensive situation. I actually only thought at first it was sort of almost like a self-defense situation, like the example you used when you're walking down the street and you sort of get that feeling or, you know, like you cross the street and someone behind you 20 meters back sort of crosses the street too. And you just get that feeling, hey, I need to like, 
I need to sort of watch my back right now. Or in a judo competition, when you grip up and you immediately feel the power in the base of the person you're gripping, or you just, you know, you get those those uh, feelings. I need to be very careful right now. I'm I'm sort of treading on on some dangerous territory. But I never really thought about it in an offensive setting. And I like how you discussed, you know, you kind of just have to feel it. And one thing I've realized, the main difference for me, you know, being, again, pure, almost purely a jiu-jitsu guy who's trying to incorporate judo in their game is, like you mentioned, jiu-jitsu is kind of a slower art compared to judo. Judo is so much more physical uh, in nature and you almost have to. It's not like judo, uh, jujitsu where it's like step by step almost. It's like you have to feel the, the transition. It's like you, you need to know that it's there. You can't even see it sometimes. You just, you, you kind of just trust your, your body and your instincts to know that the technique is sort of, is going to be there by the time that your kazushi hits, right? So it's like, I never thought of it in an offensive setting, but that's really interesting that you you talk about it that way as well. So there's two ways to think about it. And when you think about it in an offensive setting, right, you actually probably do it in your day-to-day life, right? Think about um, when you're driving a car and you're in the middle of the road and you need to make a left-hand turn. Have you ever like had a situation where that car is almost there? not there and you're like should i go should i not go and then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you punch it and you go for it anyways that's that meter telling you like you're gauging your ability to be successful Mm -hmm. and you can use that same application in anything in life and from bjj to judo to just being able to make that left hand turn where you're gauging very quickly your ability to be successful in that given environment Yeah. And even in really high stakes, you know, like office situations, the same thing comes up and it's kind of crazy how the parallels run. Like, I mean, anyone who who works a desk job, like when you get a a sudden meeting invite at 430 p.m. that's called like quick chat from your boss, (laughs) you know that that is the oh shit moment. Like you got to tread carefully. And uh, on the other hand, though, yeah, sometimes when the balance of power is, is in your favor, you can see that the other person is having the same experience. And some, I mean, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not when you're in an office setting. But of course, when you're in a competition, it's like you said, when you can detect, I guess, that your opponent has achieved that, that oh shit moment when they, when they kind of break or when you find a hole in their game, then, then you can just go. And I, I've definitely felt that myself, even just being a casual guy where, you know, I'll be sparring with someone and I'll be trying to pass their guard. And I'll be like, this guy's guard is legit. It is very, very hard to pass. But then I switch the angle a bit and I force them to play a slightly different guard and then I feel it and I realize aha this is the spot where I'm stronger than the other guy and this is where I want to attack from and like you said once you find just that right angle just that right opening then you have to go you know it's it's funny that you bring up like the the tough guard passing um scenario because it a lot of it has to do with mindset and mentality and you know, Gordon is a great example of that mindset and mentality where he's like, you know what? Like I have my ability to pass the guard, right? Let's say I use one, two, and three techniques to pass the guard and it's just my go-to. Regardless of whether it works or not, as long as I'm able to stay offensive and apply these techniques in a systematic and meaningful way, then I am doing my job regardless of whether I've passed your guard or not. And I think 
that mentality falls short on a lot of lower ranks and people from a non-competitive standpoint. Yeah, like we, we, this is basically the Gordon Ryan show. I mention him like every episode. <laughs> his his instruction has helped me so much understand how jujitsu actually works. I find with with his instruction, I, I'm learning things that I I really I already knew the, these systems and stuff. But he he'll show, and I get the same thing from watching John Danaher, where he's like, I already know how to play butterfly guard. I already know how to play uh, close guard, and I already know how to attack the back. And then I'll watch them, and I'm like, oh my god, that was like a detail that I had overlooked for years, and it's and now it's game changing for me, you know. And you'll get that that breakthrough concept where you you know you can immediately apply it to your game, and I, I get that a lot from those guys. So you know, I I I mentioned Gordon Ryan. A lot. Literally at least like twice every episode you're plugging Gordon Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> we should actually get an affiliate code from him or something. <laughs> but yeah, I, one of the things I love about Gordon is that, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to like him personally. You don't have to agree with everything he says, but something that you touched on Travis was that he's, he's got that like unshakable confidence and a lot of the time having that confidence is more important than any individual result that you get. Like it's easy to just crack and break under the pressure when you, when one thing doesn't go your way. But one of the things that I, I've had to learn uh, to work with as I get older is basically to give an F you to reality every time things don't go the way that I want, right? You know, rather than just getting off the horse and saying, well, I guess I can't do this. You basically have to say to reality, no, fuck you. I can do this um, and just power through. And it is the confidence that you have in your training and your ability and in the that you did everything right that kind of allows you to power through. And in many ways, that's more important than whether you win or lose on any individual day, right? Well, if you if you back it up a step and you and you actually pay attention to the flow in which winning and losing actually happens, even even for me, right? If if I'm at a training camp, for example, and I'm I'm fighting with somebody and I'm trying to throw them and I'm trying all these new techniques, like I was in Paris one time at one of the biggest training camps in the world and I was training with the guy from Moldova. And he threw me 15 times in five minutes. And I walked off the mat like completely annoyed, completely angry. And then I had to compete with him three months later at a Grand Slam um, in the quarterfinals. And I remember walking out onto that mat being probably the most confident I could be going into that match because of what had happened during that training session with this guy. Because I understand the mentality of training. I understand the difference between winning and losing. And I understand the difference between being in danger and not. And when I was training with that guy, yeah, he threw me 15 times. But all 15 of his throws were counters to my throws where I was on my feet trying to throw him. He never once actually outgripped me, stepped in and threw me. So when I stepped out onto the mat, I was like, well, this will be easy. As long as I don't stay on two feet and try to throw him in a standing position, he'll never throw me. And sure enough, all I did were dropping throws, transition to Nawaza, burn the clock out, and I won. It's as simple as one, two, three. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no different than if we go back to this guard passing scenario where 
if I am always offensive trying to pass your guard and you're not allowing me to because all you're doing is playing a defensive reactive game to maintain it, I am winning. I am doing a good job. Techniques in jiu-jitsu aren't supposed to work if the person plays 100% defense to it because every technique has a defense. But if you could maintain somebody always being on defense, you're winning. And that's kind of Gordon's thing on why he likes those no time limit matches is because he understands that when he's struggling, it's because his opponents are only playing defense. And that's what gives him that ability to attack all the time because every time he tries to attack, all they do is run. And he's like, hey, if somebody really wants to try to beat me, like pass my guard and submit me. And then everybody brings up the Felipe Pena matchup. And again, in turn, that was because Gordon was attacking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because jujitsu, I think when it's taught... It's taught a lot of the time as like a fundamentally defensive art. You know, that's that's actually one of the beautiful things about jujitsu is that you can basically play a very defensive style and still be quite effective when fighting. But the challenge is, like you said, at some point you've got to learn in your journey to pull the trigger, right? If you're just one of those guys who just basically sits back and plays guard and just tries to stay defensive the whole time, if the other guy is just on the offense nonstop, like eventually, no matter how good the wall is that you put up, they're going to be able to crack through it, right? And a big part of, I think, learning to play the bottom effectively in jujitsu is learning that, no, I can't just sit here and hold the guy. That's not me winning. I've got to actually go on the attack and find a way to dominate the pace, dominate the position. Um, I remember struggling with this quite a bit where, you know, when I I would wind up on the bottom, usually being the smaller guy, I wind up on the bottom and I just kind of sit there and wait for the guy to engage and then I'd counterfight him. And yeah, a lot of the time when you're when you're coming up in the ranks and you're learning, that'll work just fine. But it gets to a point where you realize like the quality of my opponent is too good. And if I just sit here on the defense, eventually they're going to break through my defenses and I've got to do better than that. I've got to actually dictate the pace. Travis, I like that example you talked about where you were training with that guy and then you had to fight him and how you just you changed your game plan basically based on how the training went based on the wind conditions you know like you knew that if you gripped him and tried to throw him with two feet on the ground he he was very aware and very good at countering and he was probably thinking oh well you know i i threw travis a bunch of times and ran dory I think I got this guy's number. And so on the fly, based on the wind conditions, you knew that you could go for, um, you know, big dropping throws and then get the fight to the ground where most judoka will just be like, okay, well, let's get back to the feet now. You know, ref, let's get a mate. But they're not expecting a John Danaher black belt to now be on top of them or, or be on the ground with them. And you're you had no interest in allowing the mate. You were going to pursue the action on the ground. So that's a that's an excellent example of using the the rules to your advantage and switching up your game on the fly. And that's that's really uh, that's a great competitive mindset. Well, I mean, at the at the time when that match happened, I hadn't even been doing jujitsu. That happened back in like 2010. Oh, so this is before you started training with uh, the Danaher guys. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, right, like your goal as a competitor is to win. It's not, it's not to be flashy. It's not to prove a point. It's to put W's on the board and then move on to the next round. And I think a lot of people, 
um, struggle with the mental side aspect of it, of caring so much about what the outside world thinks instead of just winning. Because I would say 95% of all athletes would tell you that how you win matters. Yeah. And for the most part, in a lot of competitions, that's, that's not the case. I think for jujitsu players where the struggle lies is the stalling and advantages and being labeled on social media as the type of player that you are and your ability to win. But at the end of the day, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, nobody's going to remember how you won your 10 world titles. Yeah. Unless you're Andre Galvao getting plastered by Gordon Ryan on social media about how he's only had like one submission in the last 10 years. <laughs> but uh, yeah, th- that's a great thing you brought up where it's like people are worried about how they look when they're competing as opposed to winning. And I this actually uh, resonates with me really well. I grew up playing a lot of different sports, but my main sport before I found jujitsu was hockey. I played hockey for over a decade. And, you know, when I when I first started jujitsu, I immediately felt pretty natural when it came to grappling. But when I started playing hockey, it was just like, man, there's so many skills you have to learn that aren't really natural. Like you have to learn how to handle a puck. You need to learn how to skate. You need to new you need to learn how to do both simultaneously. Then Once you learn those base level skills, you have to actually put it all together and, you know, be able to receive the puck, pass the puck, you know, sort of have that oh shit meter, know when you're going to get hit. Because back when I was a kid, you could still hit in minor hockey in Canada here. Uh, You needed to know when the puck was coming to you, where the puck needs to go, you know, how to get to the open spot, all these different skills. And because I was honestly really unnatural at hockey and I was late to the party as all my friends had already had about four or five years experience by the time I joined I was easily you know in my first two three years I was easily the worst guy out there and so I sort of developed this complex where I was like you know no matter what happens I just don't want to look bad out there I just don't want to let anyone down I don't want to let my teammates down. And, you know, I would I would be walking to the rink with my bag and my sticks and be and be like nervous that I'm going to look bad. And it actually later, maybe once I started becoming really competent and making the rep team, you know, I had to put in a lot of effort to get there. But I started eventually making rep teams. And I realized like that mindset was toxic because I was focused more on not looking bad rather than doing what it takes to win. And I think that that's something that competitors can take from this is it really doesn't matter if you if you have like an ugly game or a extremely basic game, but you're effective from, you know, enough positions that you can sort of make things happen when you need to. It's more important to do what's needed to win, and if it means playing the rules then, you know, honestly, some people can look at that as cheap, but I look at that as sort of uh, utilizing the rules effectively and being a, a, an effective competitor. It doesn't really matter if it's ugly or boring. It matters that you get the win. So I've sort of tried to stop thinking about how I look out there and rather just focus on the task at hand and having that mindset of um, no matter what happens, I'm going to do what it takes to win. Yeah, I think a lot of people really struggle with when they're competing, like what it's supposed to look like. And gauging that with success i see it in a lot of my like um lower ranks like my white and blue belts where 
I'll be teaching a technique and they'll get like visibly upset that, you know, they messed up like step three of five. And I'm like, but it worked. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that that it wasn't perfect. Like nobody's going to be perfect. You have to understand that the only reason why the technique is going to work is due to a mistake with your opponent. Mm -hmm. If they make no mistakes, no technique you ever do will ever work. Yeah. You have to have that back and forth with them where there's a give and take a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that also applies to your outlook on success where it's never going to be this picture perfect moment all the time. And I think social media and a lot of videos tend to sway the minds of people as they're coming up in sports, especially with Instagram and a few other things where they see highlight techniques all the time from so many different players on so many different levels. And they forget that for every one highlight they see on social media, there are thousands of missed opportunities and mistakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great, great point, right? I mean, the the downside to social media and content sharing, like on the one hand, the abundance of information that we have now is greater than it's ever been. But on the other hand, like you said, people curate their best stuff, right? They release a technique video that they may have shot 10 times to get just right. You know, they, they put out their highlight reels, which always look amazing, but no one ever puts out a highlight reel that has them like just sitting there getting flummoxed in guard for 10 minutes doing nothing, right? Everyone always wants to put their best foot forward and it's the cool stuff that gets the share. And the problem is if you expect that your game is always going to look like that, like no one, even at the highest level, you know, is able to execute textbook techniques exactly exactly the way that they they train in the gym every single time one two three when no one's resisting right as soon as your opponent starts doing stuff like you said if your opponent gives you no openings there's no technique you know you can't just whip off a, a technique whenever you want and this this is a funny thing because when I was when I was starting jujitsu I mean I used to think that you know if you're a black belt what that means is you can probably just do any technique you want like you know like call, calling like the, the eight ball in the corner hole you say you're going to do it and then you do it but I realize now it's like, no you can you can never do that even against a white belt right like if they're putting up a reasonable defense you can never just call your shot and say this is exactly what's going to happen it's all about creating openings and forcing them to make mistakes and then taking action based on that something that I wanted to touch on is you talked about caring too much about what the crowd thinks um, and you know for that matter caring too much about what people on social media think and something that I've realized over the years you know trying to figure out like what is the difference between a high pressure situation say at work versus a high pressure situation in a competition and I think the main difference is if I'm trying to do something on the job and I and I fail the number of people who watch me fail is pretty limited and I can kind of scrub that out retroactively too, right? Like if I, if I decide that I want to start a business, I mean, yes, that's a tremendously stressful thing to do. It's very hard. It takes a lot of guts, but the reality is if it doesn't go the way that I want, I can kind of just like delete it from my resume and move on with my life. You don't really have that experience of like hundreds or thousands of people sitting there watching you. And I think that is one of the things about competition that makes it unique, which is that you have to develop a different type of, of mental toughness because you basically have a, a captive audience that is watching and they're going to see whether you win or whether you lose. Yeah. Um, you know, people, 
people tend to put that again that goes back to what i was saying before about the the whole audience thing and caring what they think and what people have to really understand is no one really gives a shit about you no one cares whether you win or lose no one's going to make fun of you for the rest of your life over it and that's that's one of the reasons why gordon is so aggressive with his social media is because he has to stay top of mind cuz he understands that people just don't care he'll fall right out of the people's heads the second he shuts it down i mean I fought in three Olympic games. I couldn't even tell you the people who medaled in Rio. I was there. I couldn't even tell you the people who were in the division. There are some guys I'm like, really? He was in my division and I scratched my head going, who did he fight? I don't remember him. Because no one really makes a point to remember. 20, 30 years from now, we're not going to be talking about, you know, the worlds that happened in 2015. As big of a deal as it is for you then, and the grand scheme of your life, it's such a small percentage. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can keep it inside that that box where it's like, hey, this only matters today, then competing is actually relatively easy. As long as you've actually gotten a statistical approach to the game and how you view it. I remember I lost... Um, at a grand slam in the first round and I was upset. And I remember going back to the hotel to the cafeteria area where they were feeding everybody and I felt really embarrassed. And so I grabbed my food and I went straight up to my room and I that night I had looked at the rankings and they had updated and I was still a top five player in the world. And it hit me that like my results today don't reflect the type of player that I am, nor does it change the type of player that I am. The rest of the world still sees you as a threat because of your ranking and who you are, right? Like even if Gordon were to lose or Andre were to lose, like he's still one of the best jujitsu players on the planet. Mm -hmm. And you can't take that from people. Yeah. People tend to to build it up in their mind that everybody is pointing their finger and laughing at them because of they lost or how they lost or everybody is secretly cheering them because they've won. They get that feeling where like people look at them in the crowd and like, oh, they must know that I won and I feel really good about myself. But it's all internal. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. And that might actually answer my next question for you, which is uh, how should an athlete or a competitor deal with like inner self-doubt you know like I think I think every competitor in any sport kind of has that you know even if they're super confident they have that feeling in the back of their mind like well you know anything could happen today on on the mat and how how do you think an athlete should address self-doubt is it just thinking basically it sounds like that's an answer that's pretty valid like oh no one no one's going to remember if I win or lose today sort of how what 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 is your mindset as a high-level competitor in judo, in moments when you had self-doubt, how, how did you address that? Um, I trained harder. Nice. You know, for me, self-doubt comes in in a few different forms. One would be you don't trust your coaches, uh, which means you feel like you're doing everything yourself. Two would be you feel like you're not getting the right level of training to prepare you for whatever event you're entering into. 
which means you either need to leave where you're at to get better training or you need to raise the level of your training partners in your current location. Mm -hmm. Three would be you feel like you're not in the best shape, you haven't really put in the work, and therefore you're not really sure if you're going to be physically ready to actually win this event that you're about to enter. Mm. Those are the three areas where I feel like if I'm doubting myself, it's because of one of those three. Cool. And and when you were training for the Olympics, like how long were your training days? I'm I'm assuming you did multiple sessions per day, but like how many hours would you put in a day? Just give us an just give us an idea of like what a training week would look like when you're in judo camp for the Olympics. Um, are you talking about like that summer of? Like a few, uh, like a couple weeks before, because our our training for the game starts in like January ish, as like well, actual I, physical preparation. I assume that a couple weeks before you'd be kind of tapering, not tapering down, but like peaking and sort of getting ready to taper down. So just just at your peak of your camp, let's say maybe it's even like a month or two months before. So a couple months before we flew in four. No, three Japanese players, two were on the national team, and one had won the universities in Japan. So we're talking about three really high-level 81-kilo judo players, plus um, a few people from the States. And we would do judo for an hour and a half, twice a day. I would lift for an hour and a half, and I would do jujitsu for two and a half hours in one day. Mm-hmm. So you're, th- you're saying like uh, five, six hour days type thing? It's more like eight for just training, like physical exercises. Mm-hmm. And how many days a week would you do that? Would it be every day? Would you take some rest days? Five days a week. And then I would do um, on the weekends, it would be like an hour and a half to two hours on Saturdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's a tremendous amount of training. Like for, for mere mortals like me who kind of do this casually, you know, I'm lucky to fit in like an hour here and there. Like you're, you're basically doing that in like more than a full-time job. And like, and you mentioned earlier, Travis, that, and I, this is something we've also mentioned on the show too, that like there are different stratospheres of competition, you know, like the, the gulf between a hobbyist versus a competitor is huge. And the gulf between a competitor versus a serious competitor is huge. And again, the gulf between like a a serious competitor and a world-class elite competitor, it's like, it's not like the dial just goes up a little bit. It's a completely different way of like living, basically. Like you have to completely repurpose your whole life if you want to be elite level at something. I'd be curious to know, you know, when you're when you're operating at that level where you're truly one of the best in the world at this super competitive endeavor, what are the things that are that are different? Like what what are the things that you would do that maybe more casual, even even still like serious competitors, but people not at that level? What are the big differences that you have to make in your life if you want to go up and work in that stratosphere where you're one of just the absolute best in the world? It's actually a funny, funny question because it's the it's probably the number one thing I get asked is like, what sacrifices did you have to make to achieve that level, right? And, you know, again, it goes back to that mentality where it's like, I didn't make sacrifices. I chose the life I chose and I enjoy the life that I live. Like, I don't, I don't wake up or Friday night rolls around and I'm like, oh, you know, I really want to go to the bar with my friends. But, you know, I got this thing I got to do. It's important. 
I guess I won't go because I got to go training. Like that's not like the mentality of somebody who really wants to get better. If you want that, then that's what you should be doing. And if, if you personally feel like you have to make sacrifices because you have to go to training and you don't really want to be there and you want to go do this thing with your friends, then you're never really going to make it anyways. Mm-hmm. There are some outliers there that do both. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, like it's not in you. It's not what you really want to be doing in any aspect of life. You're forcing it at that point because you think it's a nice to have. We get a lot of people for judo specifically that move here that think saying, I want to be the next Olympian. I want to go to the Olympics. It's a nice to have for them. And they get broken so fast, just mentally, emotionally, and then physically eventually. Yeah, this is this is something I've discussed with my professor, uh, Rob, years ago. And that's basically like people will come to him and say, you know, oh, I want to be a competitor or I want to fight or you know, I want to, I want to like hang at a world-class level. They say they want to do these things, but when it comes time to for class, they often don't show up. And uh, I think it is that desire to actually, the desire for sacrifice and for struggle that you're talking about, where a lot of people say they want something, but they don't realize the weight that that goal carries. They don't want it enough to actually go through the the pain and the struggle and the failure, you know, the ups and downs of being a competitor. They don't want that. They don't want to sacrifice time with their, you know, at the bar or with their friends when they should be at the gym training. They just say they want something, but they don't they don't really want it. You know, it's like it's like, yeah, that would be nice to have. But. I actually don't want to put in the necessary work to get anywhere close to achieving that goal. Yeah, it's like they want the idea of something, but they don't want the journey. Right? They, they want the reward, but they don't want to put in the effort. Like the status. I tell people all the time, like when, when you come to me with a goal, like we have all of our athletes do yearly goal sheets with quarterly reviews. And, you know, when they write the Olympics on there, it's like, okay, you want to be an Olympian. Here we go. We're going to start a checklist because I want I want to really find out if this is what you want. I'm going to say, okay, here's where you are today. You want to be an Olympian. We're going to write down all the things that come with being an Olympian. I'm going to wake up sore every day. I'm going to work out a minimum of two times a day. I'm going to be able to travel the world. I'm going to be able to leave my family at home. I'm going to compete and break up with my girlfriend because I have to travel. I am not going to let the emotions of my personal life affect my mat time. I will always choose judo first, right? Like you start making this like list of things like I will train with broken fingers and toes. I understand I will break limbs and tear muscles. I understand that I physical therapy is a part of my everyday life. Like you start writing down these things of like all the things that just come with not being an Olympian, but the journey along with it and saying, are you ready for this? Because if you are, let me know because I'll help you get there. But if anything on this checklist bothers you, then I'm not on board because you're not. God, I'm I'm fucking fired up right now. I need to train. <laughs> just listening to all that. I'm like, shit, this is I'm hearing it from a legend. Uh I like the idea of, of as a coach, having like a, a goal checklist. Did you say you do that yearly or? Yeah, we, every year we sit down with our athletes and 
you know, we put goals into different categories. Yeah. One would be like your overall like hierarchy, like where do you want to be in your athletic journey? Mm-hmm. Um, like where is that like end of the road for you? Yeah, I like that. And then we break that goal sits on the top of the shelf and we don't touch it because we're not there yet. And then we break off our goals into three categories for the year of things that we need to accomplish this year in order to stay on track to accomplishing that overall goal. And then once we have those three goals laid down, we decide on what our personal goals are that help us achieve our athletic goals. It could be anything from good grades in school to helping our parents out to donating our time at certain events. Some people like to write books. Some people like to go to school. You know, everybody's a little bit different. And then we decide on what our judo goals are, like what we're good at today and what we need to develop in order to achieve that final hierarchy goal. And then we have check-ins every so often with people to make sure that we're staying on path to achieving that goal. You know, what's crazy is, I mean, almost every company out there tries to do this kind of stuff with their employees where they try to kind of help them have this like career path to improve. And they have this, this is the only time I've ever heard someone say that within a martial arts standpoint, they do this for their athletes. And it's actually a fucking brilliant idea. (laughs) Like I I kind of don't know why I've never heard of this before, but it's really smart. That's because jujitsu people aren't professional, Mm. right? Like, I mean, at the start of this whole thing, like, you know, you said, you are a professional in your eyes. And it's like, because you compete a lot, you run a school, like that doesn't make you a professional in my eyes. As somebody who has dedicated like every waking minute of their life to their profession, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So like when, I, I hate to bring this up again, but Gordon. I know, that's what I was thinking. Gordon, he always says Don't that. Don't worry, you're on the right show. You're on the right show. <laughs> Where... It's like he is, in all intensive purposes, the only actual professional athlete in the entire jiu-jitsu scene to me. Yeah. And that's because Andre runs a school, runs a business, teaches classes, doesn't train full time. And then on the flip side of that, people are like, well, what about Andre students? All they do is train all day, but they don't get coached all day. Right. Some of them help teach classes. Andre's out running his business. He's training, not coaching. Gordon has actually set himself up with John where John, all he does all day is teach jujitsu. That's his profession. Mm-hmm. Gordon's job is to train and listen to his coach. And it's not like John's like off in like fairy tale land because he wants to get a good workout while the rest of the room is training, not being watched. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's a different level of professionalism when you talk about their partnership where Gary Tonin isn't quite a professional jiu-jitsu player. And he'd admit it because he does MMA. He does these offshoots that he dedicates a lot of his time to. And it's okay to cross train as long as your cross training is supplemental to your profession. Just like jiu-jitsu was supplemental to my judo. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't quite understand what it means when we talk about being a professional. Like it doesn't just mean this is the thing I care about and I do most spend most of my time on. There is a a mentality in terms of 
the standard of practice, in terms of how you sharpen the saw, in terms of how you lead your team, how you focus your work, how you measure your deliverables. Like if you look at any true profession, especially those that, that are accredited, there, there is a certain bar, in some case, actually, like in the case of being a lawyer, actually called a bar. <laughs> you know, you know there, there's a certain bar you have to clear. And in jujitsu, you know, Matt and I have talked about this on the past, how a lot of competitors just seem to have like fallen into gym ownership because it's the only way that they can actually pay the bills, not because they want to do it. So you wind up with like a lot of a lot of coaches who aren't they're not really coaches. They're just competitors who only teach because they got to pay the bills. And as a result, their attention gets divided and, you know, they're putting on a mediocre experience for their students. They're probably not maximizing the quality of their own competition, where if they were just honest with themselves and basically just sat down and said, okay, here's what I actually want to do. I don't want to run a gym. (laughs) You know, I want to compete right now and focus their attention on that and build a team around them of people who can fill those other holes. Like if most people were smart about it, they would probably actually get a lot more in terms of results just by by being honest about what they do and don't want to do yeah the problem a lot of people have is they have a golfer's mentality where you know when amateur people golf and they hit that one good shot they're good like they think they're doing a good job they like that one shot actually in their minds and physically erases all of the mistakes prior they don't believe in consistent results and consistent development. And I see that a lot in jujitsu where it's like you got that sweep one time. And then when you try to talk to them about how fundamentally broken the sweep is, and if that person had been actually athletic or that person had actually been aware of what it was you were trying to do because he had a high enough of a knowledge base, your technique wouldn't work. It'll get you to maybe a blue belt, purple belt, and you'll sweep some bad brown belts with it. But if you want to beat the best, you have to actually follow fun foundational techniques that fundamentally make sense from like an anatomy standpoint. And a lot of people struggle with that because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we discuss false positives on the show quite frequently about how, you know, if you're sweeping guys in the gym that are you know, blue or purple, or even, even at some gyms, it could be higher ranks like brown and even black belts. But, you know, if you, if you think to yourself, oh, I can, I can consistently sweep black belts or submit black belts, but it's like, yeah, but if you, but what is that black belt? How do they compare to other black belts at the best gyms in the world? Like, are they, you know, the saying there's black belts and then there's black belts. So I think it's really important if you have that Kaizen mindset where you're always trying to improve always to be questioning, well, am I really like, are these moves going to work at the highest level on guys that are really knowledgeable and really athletic and juiced and greased up and, you know, under, under stressful situations, like are these techniques good enough to defeat those guys? It resonates with me how you're talking about, you know, even, even if you are dedicating your life to jujitsu, you may not be a professional competitor. And, you know, I, I definitely fall under that category being a gym owner you know, I transitioned my career from being a chef a few years ago to moving into a grappling full time. So yes, I'm a quote professional martial artist or whatever you want to call it, but like, I'm not making my money from competing. I'm not a professional competitor by any means. I, I just make my living from my school and it's definitely extremely challenging, if not 
outright impossible to be a competitor at the highest level, you know, and, and be a full-time gym owner and even, you know, father, like I got two kids. It's it, it just, you just don't have enough time in the day to dedicate towards your training. Like, you know, a 20 year old or 21 year old kid who has all the youth, all the athleticism doesn't have the same miles on their body and has no other obligations or responsibilities or distractions in their life. They can just focus on jujitsu. So I definitely think that what you're saying about Gordon being you know, one of the only professionals in a sport full of amateurs, that's, that's what he keeps saying. And, you know, the more and more that I watch jujitsu, the more I realize, Hey, like that, that is definitely true. And, and I'm guilty of that for sure. The problem a lot of people have is they instill these like negative connotations on, on words like, Oh, if I'm a black belt and I'm competing and I don't say I'm a professional, it means I'm lazy. Like, it just means you're being honest. Like, I tell people all the time that come to my gym, like, and because I'm right next to the BJJ Fanatic studio, you know, I get a lot of the people that come in and film with them, and I'm like, I'm just a fat, out of shape, old guy. <laughs> I haven't picked up a weight in, like, four or five years. Like, it's not my fault you struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I was at a higher level, no matter how far I've fallen from where I was, compared to where you are today. Like, I just see, I see like the reality from, you know, those higher levels looking down that you were just never really a professional mm-hmm. like I was or like Gordon was, where it's like I dedicated every part of my life. And I think people would actually improve quicker and enjoy the sport more if they just admitted to themselves, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a professional. I'm a hobbyist. I just really enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that one of the things about jujitsu is that we, we do kind of have this funnel towards getting people into, into being a, a quote unquote professional. Whereas in, like we said here, in reality, they're not really a professional. They're just a hardcore competitor. And I, this is, I think probably comes from the fact that in jujitsu, the, the general path that people seem to take is they get to black belt and they compete a bit and then they set up a gym. And so everyone who owns a gym seems to come at it from the perspective of a competitor and they just can't imagine a world where people don't want that for their life. I mean, for myself, I am absolutely an amateur black belt. I mean, my focus in life, the areas where I am a professional and where I put in tremendous amounts of time and energy, they're outside of jujitsu. And, you know, I get people always asking me, Steve, why don't you compete? And it's like, guy, you know, I only train a few hours a week. I'm 40 years old. I, you know, I do jujitsu because it's a fun hobby. I have no illusions towards being a professional at this. If I really wanted to do that, I'd have to restructure my life and abandon the things I really truly care about. Like, is it, is it not enough for me to just be honest and be like, I do this because it's fun, not because I want to be the absolute best world champion, right? And because you only have so much time in life, right? You have to pick your shots. Everyone has passions and things that they absolutely want to succeed at and things they do just because they enjoy it. And I think what you said is really true and really resonates that you've got to have an open and honest dialogue with yourself. And if something is what you really want to do, then you got to make the requisite sacrifices. And again, to your point, they shouldn't feel like sacrifices at that point. But if something isn't something that you really want to do, I think it's better to just be open with yourself and and understand what your goals really are. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with what you said. Like, I would rather 
be known as being the best kids BJJ school on the planet than being needed to be called a world champion at jiu-jitsu, right? It's like if your passion is teaching and helping kids develop and become better members of society, then do that and be the best at it. If your job is to help adults cope with, you know, everyday work struggles and married life and getting away from their kids and providing a fun environment for them to get away and relax and let off some steam, then do that. I don't even run a competitive jiu-jitsu school. I run a jiu-jitsu school. We teach a little bit. They do a little bit of training and it's just an environment where people can learn a little bit. They can train a little bit and they can have a good time. That's the type of school I want to run. That's just for me. Yeah. And my members like it and they gravitate towards it. And when high level people come through, we can answer questions, we can train. And you know what? You can push yourself as hard or as little as you want to. Mm -hmm. If you're looking to win a world title, I'm probably not the school for you. If you need a solid training night, then stop by and we can train. But it's not going to be an everyday thing for you. Yeah. I like that honesty. Um, you know, just being outright about your gym. My coach talks about that too. He's like, you know, we have, but I'm not embarrassed by it. Like a lot of people. No, no, not at all. Of course not. Uh, I think, I think the embracing of it is actually awesome. And, and my coach says, you know, like he's, he's gone down and, and trained with like Yuri Simos during his ADCC camp, you know, and he's, he's pretty high level coach, uh, in terms of Canada. And he's definitely the highest level coach um, on Vancouver Island. But he even says, you know, if you, if you're coming to me and you, your goal is to be a world champion, like, uh, this is probably not the place for you. Like I can only help you so far. We just don't have the the same level that you're going to get at, you know, down in some gyms in California or at Henzo's or whatever. But I also don't want it because it's going to hurt all my other members. Oh, for sure. Because, you know, if you're, if your gym is full of, uh, competitors, not only will it totally change the atmosphere of the gym, but, you know, usually high level competitors don't really pay the bills. It's it's the average Joes and the kids that are that make a business successful. And when you're talking about trying to be a high level competitor or a professional competitor and a gym owner, I mean, I'll speak from experience. It's almost like there's a fork in the road and you have to pick one or the other because during the first hour of class, when people are drilling and doing their, you know, doing live positional stuff the coach can't be in there. If if you're going to be truly a professional instructor, you can't always be in there doing, you know, getting the same reps as everyone else. You have to be walking around and watching. If you're, if your goal is to be a professional instructor and you want to do that to the best of your ability, you have to have eyes on your team so you can identify uh, weaknesses and strengths rather than selfishly trying to improve yourself. And that's something that I realized when I opened my gym is I'm like, well, I'm just not going to get the same, training that I would get if I was just the student. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that, you know, I find really fascinating about jujitsu, which is that a lot of gyms, you know, they'll be like, our goal is to get people on the podium. You know, we want to support our competitors and get them up there and, you know, help them achieve their competitive goals. And it's like, yeah, but have you looked at the makeup of your student base? Cause like 99% of them are like kids or like casual people who just want to, you know, have a good time and learn some martial arts, right? Like, are you really catering to your audience? And the thing about jujitsu is I find it odd that it, a lot of gym owners don't think it's cool to be a great gym owner and to be like a great instructor. Like their goal is to focus on competition, but in reality, 
reality, if they look at what their gym is actually all about on the ground, like what what they're preaching, what they want is not in line with the culture of their own gym. And I don't know why it's it's not cool to take being a great instructor seriously. Like, I think that's actually probably part of the reason why guys like John Danaher are so pronounced, because this is not a guy who you know, begrudgingly teaches to pay the bills because he wants to do something else, right? This is a guy who is an instructor. He is a coach and he cares about that to the same degree that competitors care about competing. On the prior episode, Travis, the one right before you came to join us, we had a black belt from Vancouver Island named Cal McDonald and he wanted to talk about kids teaching and that's his passion is, you know, how you can build educational models for kids. And when we had him on, I was blown away by the passion that this guy had for this topic and the amount of research and work that he's done. Like I came away from that conversation thinking like, holy shit, like this guy is not a guy who just like does this as a side job. Like this is a guy who cares about this as a first class concern. And he's really thought about it. It's not just like a thing he does on the side. And I think that that is an underappreciated aspect of jujitsu. I mean, yes, you can As a coach, if you have a competitive gym, you can help a small percentage of people achieve these really competitive goals. But if you bring that same champion's mindset to building a quality like family gym, a quality casual gym, and you you approach that with the same ferocity that you would a competitive gym, like you can change a lot of people's lives for the better. Because I think one of the things that, you know, most people would agree about martial arts is that it is a really powerful driver for self-improvement and improving your life. I agree a hundred percent, hundred percent. People really have to like think about what it is they want and what do they really want to, you know, walk into every day of their life for the next 20, 20, 30 years that they're running a school. I think a lot of gym owners, you know, back to that, you know, looking at the environment and caring what other people think, they feel better than the person next to them because they have an athlete that wins, right? They put themselves on a pedestal like they're some great coach. When in reality, at the lowest levels, like when you're talking white belt, blue belt, purple belt, and I'm even going to go as far as to say brown belt at the low levels, that the only reason why they're really winning is due to the athletic ability or the quick understanding of the athlete, meaning that they have like a it comes natural to them to do jujitsu, right? Like if I get a D1 wrestler in my room and I teach him a couple of things, he gives hell to the purple belt and brown belts because he's a D1 wrestler. Like what did everybody think was going to happen? You work in an office nine to five. And I think a lot of coaches like the idea of competition because it makes themselves feel like a better, bigger person because they have that athlete that they have quote unquote, coached to be at this level. And I just, I don't have that feeling personally. Like I base my ability on like the experience my students have at the gym, not necessarily like the success they have as athletes. Mm -hmm. I, I had a question for you, Travis. How do you address the nerves and the adrenaline dump that you'd get before competition? I mean, I'm assuming you'd get them. I don't actually know if you if that's something you experience, but I'm currently training for uh, just a super fight. It's been the, it's going to be like the first competition since I did Oregon open uh, before the lockdown. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm still getting myself back into the competitive mindset, but still, every time I visualize the match, I get that, uh, that butterflies in the stomach feeling. And usually on game day, I still get that feeling and it's just part of competition. But, uh, you know, speaking from someone who's been at the highest level of, of sport, just wondering how do you, as a, as a professional, you know, judo legend, how do you address those, uh, the adrenaline dump and the nerves? So let me kind of start this off with a little bit of like a background into why I think this way. I was actually preparing for, I think it was the 2014 World Championships. And I had always previously gone to the world injured, whether it's broken ribs, fractured wrist, something had usually kept me out from the summer for training. And... In 2014, we were all pumped. We were like, I went healthy through the summer. I had done all the training. I was peaked. I was ready to go. And I was going to win the worlds. And I remember I, I had like a, I had the perfect matchup in the first round. It was a Hungarian guy that was tough, but beatable. And in the athletic world, having a, like winnable first match, but a tough first match at the same time, there's like a little bit of a balance there is what's going to propel you to start off and build and build and build on your performance as the day goes. And I got really excited and I got really pumped up. My warm up went perfect. And for judo, we have a thing called the shoot. Um, you guys have it in jiu-jitsu too, but you guys use the pit. And when you go into the shoot for judo, you're usually there three to five matches before I always went on three because I, I like my routine. And so I was in the back and I was getting ready for this match and I was mentally getting ready and I was physically preparing and I was getting myself amped up to go into the shoot and win my first match at the worlds. And when I went out, when I went into the shoot, I was three matches ahead. Judo matches are typically five to seven minutes which means that if I'm in there at match three, I could be up as soon as three minutes because somebody could walk out there, get thrown. And by the time the change of the next match happens, it could be as soon as three minutes or it could be as long as indefinitely. Because at the time in 2014, the overtime period was until somebody scored. So it could go on for 20, 30 minutes. It didn't matter. And when I was in the shoot, I was getting ready. I was feeling good. I was looking at the guy in front of me. I was doing all my mantras and then match one goes by and it took seven minutes. So I was like, I was right on tempo for what was normal. And I'm picturing how I'm going to beat the guy. I'm picturing all the grips I'm going to use, all the techniques I'm going to use to stumble him. And the second match ends up going into golden score and it ends up being a 14 minute long overtime period which means that that one match took 20 minutes. And so I keep I keep trying to keep my head in the game. I keep trying to keep keep going and keep visualizing and keeping my heart rate like amped up like I'm ready to go, right? Cuz you don't want to go out there cold. And then the third match ended up going 17 minutes into golden score. And so I'd been in this shoot for nearly 45 minutes with an increased heart rate going out to that first round match. And I ended up losing three minutes into golden score on a penalty. And I was out first round at the worlds. 
and I was super disappointed. Like I grabbed my stuff. I just left and sat in my hotel room. And when I came back, I actually ended up seeing a sports psychologist about, you know, why is it every time I go to the world championships, I shit the bed. Like I've never made it out of the second or third round at the worlds. I've never made it to the quarters. I've won and medaled at every big event on the world circuit except for that one. So I remember talking to the sports psychologist about my training methods and everything. And she gave me a piece of advice that I stuck to till this day. And I stand by it a hundred percent because ever since she told me I've used it, it's worked like a charm and it's what gets me through the first couple rounds. And before you end up going to tournaments and while you're visualizing, uh, one of the things that she had given me as an example is to visualize the physical stimulus of the matches rather than the outcome of the matches. Because what was happening to me was as you're visualizing how you're going to win, these little things would creep inside my mind of like, oh, I just pictured him throwing him with Uchimata, for example. And I've done that now six times and I'm on like minute 10 of my visualization. And then for no apparent reason, he just spins out of my Uchimata. Because I think because I get mentally bored with visualizing the same thing, I try to make it interesting by making him counter it. And I've allowed that negative impact into my mind. And then I just keep feeding little negative impacts in all these situations that he's countering everything I'm doing. And then I'm recountering. And before you know it, panic sets in. Because mm-hmm. you had some failure or what you were visualizing now didn't work. Exactly. And so you're basically starting from scratch every time. Mm-hmm. And so what she would tell me was, Think about like what your heart rate feels like going out when you're standing in the chute, looking out at the arena. Visualize and feel what like the tatami feels like on your feet. Mm-hmm. Your lungs burning. Yeah. How do you feel with your lungs burning? Is your throat on fire? Is it difficult to breathe? How does the tape feel on your hands? Like what's that feeling when you're, when the ref says Hajime for the first time? And then think about like, oh, you're two minutes into this match and you get a penalty. Like, how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. And when you start getting into the emotional side of it, you'll start to notice you'll get goosebumps and you'll get an elevated heart rate. Getting it right now, bro. (laughs) I'm right there right now. (laughs) Yeah, but the great part about it is you've never actually put a face or a name to that feeling. So you're training your body on a cellular level to actually fight and compete all of the time without ever actually looking at the technical side of the sport. You're just getting your body to recognize the emotions and the physical stimulus that you have. And so once I was able to kind of not master, but get comfortable with the idea of being able to do that, the other important thing that she told me was the ability to turn on and turn off like a light switch. So whereas before, like I would get up and I was getting emotionally ready, like I was pumping myself up before I went into the shoot. Now I don't actually get myself ready until I can actually see myself walking out onto that mat. So before when I was doing it like two, three, four rounds before, now I do it one round before. 
Mm-hmm. And that way I'm only, I'm going in with an elevated heart rate that can be maintained instead of an elevated heart rate for 15 to 20 minutes. And I treat the time before as if it's another day in the gym or I'm walking down the street with friends or I'm talking to people. Like before my semifinal match in Rio, they actually found me in the shoot watching TV with my feet up on a table, hands behind my head, sitting in a chair, just like a lounge chair. Mm-hmm. I was just relaxed, just watching the other semifinal. Yeah. Because I was just doing my job as an athlete. I was staying relaxed. I was staying comfortable. And when it was time to stand up and be the next person, then I'll get ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely been a victim of my own I don't know what you'd want to call it, but like my preparation and the warm up, you know, you get fired up and then it's like by the time you go out there, you realize like, shit, I've been way too warm and now I'm tired way too long. (laughs) Yeah, way too long. And then, you know, I remember that happened to me one year at the pans and, you know, I I lost and then I watched like uh, I think it was back when Cobrinha and Hafa Mendes still had their rivalry and then i look in the bullpen they're standing there waiting to go they were there for maybe 20 30 40 minutes not doing anything just standing just breathing and not you know no emotion just staying relaxed until it was right about time to go out and then and then you know they just went at it so i'm like man like those guys are just staying so calm i was in the bullpen like hyping myself up and, and, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And just like cluttering my mind with, with what I thought I needed to do and getting my heart rate up, getting sweaty. And then by the time I went out, I'm like, I'm fucking exhausted right now. This is not good. Like, uh, so I definitely, that's something that I'm definitely going to take into competition. That's awesome. A lot of people in jujitsu, I see it when you look down at the bullpen, they got their headphones, they're bobbing along, they're moving. All they're doing is burning energy. Mm-hmm. And it's a crazy thing because jujitsu is such a slow sport that you don't really need to be that amped up to get started. And the Cobrinha match, like you had talked about, is a great example where it's like they understand that they're in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a 10, 12 minute match. And if it does get, if something does happen before then, it's not because they amped themselves up before that. It's because their opponent made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And you see people get all amped up just to run out there and then sit and do nothing. Yeah, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah, it actually happens. I remember I was watching, um, is it Marigali? Yeah. He like, he was like fake running onto the mat. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he gets hyped. This is going to be good. He's going to run right at him. He's getting ready. And then he shook hands and then stood there. And I was like, what are we doing? Yeah. It's it's like screaming and yelling at somebody, but then never actually hitting them. Yeah, exactly. No, I totally hear you. That is really fantastic insight from someone who's done it at the highest level. I mean, I don't, I don't really have much more to discuss. I did have a list of questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, I can shorten it up a bit, but they're just basically short questions, like kind of yes or no answers. I, and if, if that's all right with you. Of course. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, what age did you start grappling judo? Uh, two weeks before my seventh birthday. And then when I was 11, I suffered a catastrophic knee injury where I couldn't play sports for four years. 
So I came back um, when I was about 15, 16 years old. Okay. It's a side, side note question because uh, I, I have knee injuries and stuff mostly torn meniscuses. I haven't torn any ligaments, but, uh, have you, have you had like knee surgeries? What, what's the extent of your knee injuries? Just curious, out of curiosity. I've just had the one knee injury, thankfully. And I had partial tears in my LCL, MCL, ACL, cartilage, and meniscus. You had the surgery done? Like you had the meniscus cleaned and things like that? I was put in a straight leg brace for six months and then had a scope done to clear it all out because I was young and still had growth plates. Mm. And then I spent about another year on crutches, another year in rehab. And then I had another scope done my freshman year of high school to clean it all up. Jeez. And how is it today? It hyperextends a little bit, but for the most part, like I've strengthened all the muscles around it and everything. So it's pretty healthy. Nice. Okay. How often do you do randori like nowadays? Uh, whenever somebody asks. So pretty much daily, I guess, would be the answer, right? Mm, not really. If I'm lucky, I'll get maybe three or four rounds in a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that includes jujitsu too. Like that, that would include. Yeah. Okay. That's the whole kit and caboodle. Cool. People don't usually like to train with me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I can see that. Uh, what's more fun, nogi or gi? Nogi. Do you train with Danaher guys a lot? Uh, not lately. No, not in actually a few years. Ever since they changed the schedule up at the school, um, I haven't been able to make it in. Is it worth it to try to win the Olympics? No. Have you ever practiced sambo? No. Is jujitsu easy? Yes. Was MMA ever a goal? for you no have you trained mma yes who's your favorite grappler of all time myself (laughs) yes i guess that's your favorite judoka then too yes about time someone used that that is the right answer and not enough people use that one (laughs) okay growing up like did you idolize any judo maybe not idolize but did you have a favorite judoka no i always saw them as stepping stones to surpass that's awesome. One time I went to a Gary Tonin seminar and he was like, never idolize anyone, never put anyone on a pedestal because you might need to fight them. And, and, he, and then he kind of looked at someone in the room and he's like, you might have to fight me one day. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, do you watch competitive jujitsu? No, it's boring. Do you watch competitive judo still? No. What's your favorite food? Cheesy Italian food. I'll label it all as kind of like the same thing. Yeah. What's better, coffee or metals? Coffee. How do you take it? Uh, any way I can, usually. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not all that picky. I'm not a coffee connoisseur. It, like, I don't like the fancy stuff. You just like drip coffee. Yeah. You know, people always talk about like the types of roast and how good it is. And I'm like, it's coffee. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Well, okay. I guess the real question is, do you put sugar in it? Um, it depends on where I get it from. When I'm using the Keurig in my office, I don't. Yeah. Keurigs are good, man. I like them. They're, they're a lifesaver. They make good coffee and they're just so convenient, right? I didn't get one. It's the convenient part that gets me. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to make like a whole pot. You can just make like one really good cup. Yeah, and it's like, you know what? At the end of the pot, if you didn't drink it fast enough, it's garbage anyways. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, back on track. Do you study leg locks? 
I guess I don't study anything, but I do know <laughs> leg locks. Um, I was around when the leg lock system when I was at John's yeah. was first getting developed. So I would say I have a very rudimentary understanding of leg locks. I don't stay up to date with the new stuff that they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the new stuff that they're doing really applies to 99.9% of people. So I don't care to actually mm. figure it out because most of them can't get past steps one and two. Do you wake up in pain? Yes. Should BJJ and or Nogi be in the Olympics? No. Couldn't, even if I wanted it to. Yeah, I tend to agree. Would you ever take another BJJ match for fun or a judo match? A BJJ match, yes. A judo match, probably not. I don't think I could physically yeah. um, compete at that level where it would be interesting. Is that because BJJ is easy? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But the physicality of judo, like I can handle my own with just about anybody in like a randori session. Mm-hmm. But once it turns into don't get thrown, yeah, my neck and my back, I don't think could take it right jujitsu just doesn't have that impact yeah yeah for sure what's your favorite throw the one that works i take it that's your favorite submission as well yep do you have a favorite judo combination like a like a koichi to a to an uchi or or a tayatoshi or something something like that no i'm pretty i'm pretty straightforward when it comes to judo like i use combinations in in terms of I make you think one thing and then do another, mm. not I do one technique into another. Right. So it's the one that works. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll, I'll do Iponse Nagi twice forward and then I'll do Koji backwards and the Koji nice. will work. Yeah. Yeah. What's better for self-defense in order wrestling BJJ judo? Like what's the best to the worst? If we're talking on a world standard, judo, then wrestling, then jujitsu. If we're talking about U.S. standard and Canadian standard, wrestling, then judo, then jujitsu. So you think jujitsu is the weakest for self-defense? Yes. Because you're on the bottom position? Because I think a lot of people hype it up so much Mm -hmm. that it gives everybody a false sense of security that they're tough when they're not. They don't spend enough time on their feet. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about BJJ and MMA and all these other crazy things. But the only reason why they're successful is because of the other arts, mm-hmm. in which case they need to go other places. But in a self-defense scenario, the one thing you want to be over the other person is tougher. Mm-hmm. And I don't think BJJ turns out tough people. I think wrestling and judo does. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, what's the worst injury you've ever had? I would label it into three categories because I, I don't know how to differentiate them. But I had a concussion in 2015 that sidelined me for four and a half, five months. I couldn't even remember what I had for lunch three, four weeks in. Jeez. Couldn't walk in a straight line. Three months in, I tried to work out and I felt like I was on a tilt-a-whirl and I actually tried to walk and fell over. And was stuck in the fetal position for about 15 minutes. Hmm. In 20, 
11, I think it was, I herniated five discs in my neck and I had two or three bulging from doing a drop of Ochi and a guy sprawling on the top of my head. Oh God. (laughs) And then in 2015, I got a severe bacterial infection in my leg and was hospitalized for seven days and they almost amputated it. Jesus Christ. I also popped my SI joint in 2015 right after that surgery, which is devastating if you've never done it. What is the SI joint? It's the part where your tailbone meets your lower spine. Oh my God. Jeez. So <laughs> I tried to throw a 100 kilo guy with her eye and I spun to my right to throw him and he jumped to my left and he spun my lower half behind me while I rotated my shoulders forward oh. and it popped my SI joint out. That sounds it went, terrifying. It went right back in, but the damage it was, was done. <laughs> yeah, damage was done. Cool, man. I would ask you, I had one more question, which is what would you rather have, new knees or new fingers? But it sounds like you want a new everything, so I <laughs> don't really know. No, what. I'm I'm actually pretty healthy now. Like I I do a lot of, I used to, the, the later part of my career, I did a lot of physical therapy rather than strength training to, to elongate my career. So now I'm, I'm fairly healthy. Like I could pretty much hold my own with anybody I train with. I just can't push myself to win. It takes a little bit different, um, commitment to like see opportunities and go through the hole. Like every time I see that opportunity, I gauge like, is it really worth it? Mm, I'm good. I'm just going to play right here. Mm hmm. Awesome. Great, man. And I'm going through that right now. Uh, now I'm 32 and I'm sort of realizing, you know, I used to lift weights and stuff a lot and I would neglect like the stabilizers and the, you know, parts of my body that I wouldn't even think of. But now I'm going back and I'm starting to try and heal things that I had damaged throughout my twenties when I, you know, you don't really feel as many injuries. And yep. so I definitely, that, that makes a lot of sense going through physio now. But uh, that's basically all I got. Steve, you got anything to add? Yeah, Travis, I mean, this conversation's been amazing. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I mean, it was super valuable to me, to Matt, I'm sure, and I I hope also to our listeners. Um, Before we tie this up, is there anything that you want to plug? If our listeners wanted to to learn more about you or learn more from you, where could they go to do that? It's actually funny that you mentioned that because right now on my computer screen, I actually have the back end to a new website open that I'm building out with Jimmy Pedro. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we're going to be building out a monthly subscription model where people like yourselves and other judo players can actually learn judo from the ground up rather than trying to figure it out and piece things together on your own. We're going to start at like the very base level shadow movements all the way up into Olympic level judo across multitudes of techniques and going over transition strategies and drilling and skills development, all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Nice, nice. Is I'm assuming it's not live yet. Is there a, a web address or is it best for people to just follow you on social until it's launched? Yeah, they can follow me on social until it's launched. We're a couple weeks away from opening up a pre-registration, but we've got over 300 something techniques already filmed, ready to go. Nice. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, that's great. 
again, thank you so much for your time. Of course, our everyone knows how to find us. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com to get our website, our database of concepts, to send us a message. Of course, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. Again, Travis, fantastic conversation. I really can't tell you how much how much we appreciate your time. Um, really great, great insights, especially on like mental toughness and resilience. And it was great to also hear you, you know, validate the importance of jujitsu as like a family and that, you know, you don't need to just be super competitive. It's about knowing your goals. And I think that's a really important thing that not enough people say. So thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.